years. Um, we started the conversation with Will in, I think, November time. And so it's felt like quite a long process to get to here, but it's great to have finally landed here in Redland, uh, particularly after a slightly shaky start two weeks ago, uh, but when I came down with COVID, but all is good. Um, I have really enjoyed getting to know some of you over the last week uh, and look forward to getting to know those people that I haven't yet had a chance to have a conversation with. But as I say, it's really, really good to be here. I wonder how you're feeling right now in terms of how full you are today. Maybe you had a big lunch before you came out um, and your stomach is feeling like it could burst. Your brain is crammed full of information from your busy week. Maybe you have had a busy week at work. Uh, maybe there is lots of things going on in your family that's taking up your mind space. Maybe you're mentally writing lists for the summer that is to come. Um, planning for holidays and time away and some time off amidst all the busyness of life. Maybe your head is full of disappointment and hurt from the challenges of life that may have come. Maybe you're looking forward to a future full of hope and full of dreams and full of vision in terms of what God is calling you to. The reality is, though, for most of us, our minds and our lives are pretty full. Whilst this is often the reality of life, I wonder if it's the best reality of life. Or I wonder whether there is a different countercultural way in which we might approach busyness and how it fills our mind and our time. Maybe there's a way that we can change the pace of life to be a little kinder to ourselves to be kinder to the people and the places and the environment around us. Maybe to find a way that points people beyond ourselves to God, his goodness, and his plans for all of us. Before we dive into exploring today's passage, which will be in Luke 5, if you want to be kind of getting ahead of the game, um, it's always helpful to consider the context in which we will find our reading. So before we start the, the um, focusing on the short passage, let's put this passage into context. The first two chapters of Luke cover Mary's pregnancy, the birth of Jesus, and his life as a young child. Very important starting point. Chapter 3 focuses on John the Baptist, and um, then uh, gives us a whole genealogy of Jesus, where he has come from, and gives us some clues as to where we is in the story. It's only one chapter before ours where we will be starting to look a little bit more in depth that Jesus' ministry as an adult begins to take shape. The accounts of Luke anyway begin with Jesus in the wilderness, removed from people, removed from places, removed from situations. I don't know whether you've reflected on that, but for me, that seems a weird place for the Messiah, the journey of the Messiah here on earth, which the Jewish people were expecting to come and take down the ruling Roman population, expecting a king, a warrior, a powerful figure to come. They all wanted a, an action superhero. Well, they got, instead was a human carpenter who removed himself into the desert. And he was there for 40 days 
and 40 nights. It doesn't sound like the start of a dramatic transformation story, does it? However, whilst he was there, he grappled with his humanity. He grappled with solitude. But he dealt in intimate togetherness with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. And it was this season that birthed his ministry. The remainder of chapter 4, following his emergence from the, from the uh, wilderness, Jesus declares himself the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. He stands before the people in the temple, reading the very famous words that we may now refer to as the Jesus Manifesto, in which he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What to us might seem like a shaky start, to Jesus gave him the ability to be totally assured of his authority in the one who sent him and begins to give the religious people of the time clues to his real identity. However, they don't recognize him for who he is, and they send him away. Luke goes far, so far as to imply that they even intended to throw him off a cliff, so heretical was what he was saying. However, I don't know about you, but at that point, I think I may have walked away. Jesus didn't give up. Yes, he walked away from the religious heart of the city, but instead, he goes amongst the people. He begins his subversive, ground-roots, individual-centered ministry. And we read of casting out of demons and mass healings. Jesus' exciting, transformational ministry has begun. I wonder how easily, though, we get caught up in those exciting stories. Yes, transformation is amazing. And yes, there is lots of themes. And it's amazing to read that and to dwell in that. But I wonder how often we miss the fact that those, that short um, verse right at the end of that passage, where it talks not of Jesus building a name for himself, but instead about removing himself to the quiet places, the solitary places, before he then leaves to venture into new territories. He's not a celebrity coming in, trying to fix the situation, bringing attention to himself, and then going on to make difference in a new place. Instead, he comes to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He's pointing, not to himself, but to his Father in heaven. And so we come to the, the chapter in which we find our main focus for today. Just before the passage that we are going to read, Jesus calls the first of his disciples, bringing transformation to the lives of four fishermen. Yes, transformation, but transformation rooted in the people they were. He uses the analogy of fishing, and rather than fishing for fish, he calls them to a different pathway to fish for men, as he calls it. So, having set the scene and immersed ourselves in the context of today's passage, why don't you turn to me to Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 to 16. If you have your Bibles, otherwise it is on the screen behind me, good. 
So starting at verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, willing, you can make me clean. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. This is, I'm sure, a passage that many of you will have heard time and again or have read yourself. Maybe not in Luke, uh, it's in all four of the Gospel narratives. The miraculous healing recorded here is amazing. It's early on in Jesus' ministry. It's starting to set a precedent for what is to come. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you that the mission of Redland Church is that we are inviting and equipping people to be apprentices of Jesus, like those first disciples, being formed by him to be a visible presence of renewal wherever he has placed us. I wonder then how often you've heard those passages spoken about, and you've been inspired and encouraged by the stories of faith, by the healing, by the transformation. I wonder how many times we've reflected on what it says about the nature of mission and evangelism and on the importance of testimony. And yes, don't hear me wrong, they are all incredibly important things in our faith journeys. But I wonder, however, how often we miss the point that at the end of that passage, in just a few words, we are told that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It's not, of course, the only time in the Gospels that we hear that Jesus does this. There are a number of times where Jesus is spoken of walking alongside the lake, or through the grain fields, or going to the mountainside to pray, or withdrawing by boat to a private place, or going to a private house where nobody is expecting him to be, or dismissing the crowds from him to allow him to enter a quiet place. Of course, he finds himself praying in the Mount of Olives, which is often referred to as the usual place that Jesus prayed alone. And obviously in the Garden of Gethsemane too, towards the end of his ministry. So what? You might think maybe Jesus had done his Myers-Briggs test and knew exactly that he was an introvert and he needed time away from people. Maybe he was an introvert, who knows? But it's much, much more specific and intentional than that. In all of the passages, Jesus intentionally withdraws himself with the one act to pray and to spend time with his father, to continue to develop and build that relationship, to empty himself of the busyness of life and to enable himself to be refilled with the spirit.
When we look, it's interesting to look at the account of the disciples when they ask Jesus how to pray, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Um, I'll read it to you now for those of you that don't have it familiar in your heads. uh, uh, Taken from Luke 13, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Again, a certain place where he would pray. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. It's interesting when we look at it, that it gives us real insight, not only into what Jesus said we should do to pray, but also an insight into how he himself prayed. The disciples had observed Jesus removing himself to pray in the quiet place. Had they been praying with him and it be a noise and all together, they wouldn't have had to have asked for that sense of instruction and teaching. So we can surmise that regularly Jesus took himself off to pray. And effectively, Jesus gives each person their present at that time and to us now as his disciples 2,000 odd years later, a prayer manual. With the familiarity of using the term father, he suggests right from the start that sense of spending time maintaining an already established very important relationship. With hallowed be your name, we're encouraged to recognize God's authority and to worship him. Your kingdom come, we are called to pray to see more of the presence of God and more of his reign and authority in the world around us, to seek transformation and to change, uh, to see change, sorry, in the day-to-day situations and relationships in which we find ourselves. When we pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. We are reminded that God alone can wipe clean our sin. But because he extends grace to us, so we are called to extend grace to those people around us. And finally, when we are uh, encouraged to pray and lead us not into temptation, we are encouraged to recognize that we are totally dependent on God in our faith journey. We can't do it by ourselves. He has to be here in partnership with us. So, hopefully, I have given you enough information for you to be on board with the fact that Jesus saw importance in prayer, and the way that he did that was by removing himself from the busyness of life around him, to maintain his own relationship with his Father, to worship him, to recognize his power and presence and authority in the world and to speak to his dependence on in terms of practical and spiritual provision and direction. I hope too then that we're all in agreement that we called as disciples of Jesus are called to follow his example. So how do you feel about spending time alone? How often do you find the opportunity to take time out of your busy lives? How often do you make the opportunity to do that. I wonder whether we're taking time to spend purely in silence, and if not, why not? Why should we? Let me suggest then that as Jesus implies, there is 
real significant value in spending time in silence, in investing into our own relationship with God. In fact, if we pause and consider briefly the Quakers, there's a whole Christian movement that has built their expression of worship around the act of silence. It's where they start their worship and their interaction with God, not with noise, not with singing, not there's anything wrong with that. But for some people, silence is where it needs to begin. The thing is, I wonder how many of us, when we hear of silence, think of it as a passive thing that happens to us, something that we need to endure, something that's out of our control. Jesus' approach was very different. He actively pursued solitude and silence with a very specific and intentional purpose. I wonder then, if we approach silence proactively and intentionally, whether we also might find it beneficial for our own lives and our own spirituality. Henry Nguyen, a famous 20th century Dutch priest and theologian, goes as far as to say, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to have a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and to listen to him. So with this in mind, I'd love us to take some time right now to pause and to be silent, intentionally silent. As we do so on a practical level, if you have your photos in front of you, why don't you flip them over or put them away in your pocket? I know how easy it is to be distracted. And then get yourself comfortable. You might want to shut your eyes. Where you are sat right now, we're going to spend just four minutes in silence. For some people, that might fill you with panic. I can assure you, four minutes is about the length of a TV ad break. You've survived it many times before. You'll do it again this evening. As we go into silence, you might find your mind filled with random things. That's okay. That's all right. It's going to take time to switch off from the busyness of life. Address those things. Engage with those things. Most of those things you'll be able to put to one side. You might be starting to get a bit hungry. You might be starting to think about what you're going to have for dinner. Try and put that to one side. You have time to think about that in 10 minutes. For some people, you might find it helpful to visualize a candle burning in your head. For others, you may want to spend time reflecting on the Lord's Prayer or on a favorite Bible verse or reflecting on a worship song that we have sung. But try, for at least part of the next four minutes, to switch off, to empty your mind, and to allow God to speak to you in the silence. I'm going to set my alarm on my phone, so you're not dependent on me. It doesn't matter if I fall asleep uh, in my four minutes of silence. The alarm will tell us that it's time to um, come back uh, and to gather our thoughts together. Let me pray as we go into this time of silence then. Father God, we pray that you um, allow us this time to engage with you. We thank you that you are present here with us now. And God, we ask you that you speak to us, that you prompt us, you guide us, and you inspire us as we sit and as we commit this time to you right now. Amen. So I'm going to set my timer for four minutes.
I'd be really interested to have a conversation with each of you to find out the value that you were able to perceive within those four minutes. And I hope for each of you that there was something precious and important about that time that you were able to park the busyness of life and just to be. Obviously, I don't have time to do that right now. But maybe just ponder for a moment and think about what it was that you saw as valuable in that time. And if you found something, maybe I can challenge you to try and find some time in the busyness of your life. I'm not suggesting you need to go away for a week and spend a week in silence on a silent retreat. Although for some of you, that might be helpful. For me, that sounds like a nightmare. I can manage five minutes every day, I think, probably. I wonder how much difference we would see in our own relationships with God to invest that time in our day-to-day busy lives. But I also wonder whether it goes deeper and further than just our own relationships. Nguyen goes on to say, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. In the gospel narratives, in the stories of Jesus, we see a pattern emerging. Jesus acts in the power of God. Then he retreats to spend time praying, to spend time intimately with his Father, actively emptying himself so that he could be refilled to overflowing with the Spirit, in whom and through whom he could do all things, and in whom and through whom he promises that we also can do all things. As we come into land then, I found this quote by the spiritual, spiritual formation and leadership coach, uh, whose name is Alan Fadling, really helpful. The practices of solitude, silence, and listening to God started to slow me down and enabled me to focus my attention more and more on coming to Jesus and following him, rather than talking about Jesus and slaving away for him. The focus was less and less on my own activity for him and more on my attentiveness towards him, on walking with him and on working with him. In other words, maybe, just maybe, silence is one of the keys in helping us as a church to act out our mission here in Redland and beyond. I'd love to challenge you to find some time this week where you can carve out some silence. Maybe it's a chunk of time. Maybe it's an hour on Thursday, five minutes at the start of each day, or at another point uh, regularly throughout the week. It's not the point when you do it. It's just the the stepping into it and giving yourself active time where you can empty yourself from the stuff of life. Dwell in the presence of God. Allow him to make his home in you, you. And to allow yourself to be filled to overflowing with the Spirit. To allow God to dwell more deeply within you and around you. That act of deliberate engaged silence. We can actively engage in God's call to us to be people who are apprentices of Jesus, being formed by him to be a visible presence of renewal where he has placed us. Amen.
It might seem a bit strange to follow Wayne's talk by, by singing, follow a talk on silence by singing, but the two songs we're going to sing now complement the kind of subject of Wayne's talk in that they, they draw us beyond ourselves and they help us to approach, approach Jesus. And they remind us that we are all in need of him, of Jesus, that we are hopeless, left to our own devices. So you can stand or you can remain seated. It's up to you. Um, if you feel you want to change, it might be an idea to stand. <laughs> 